0: Hey, folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is the MCRIT Podcast. Today, we're going to go over the new AHA, American Stroke Association, Spontaneous Intercerebral Hemorrhage Guidelines. Uh, not with just me, because if there is a neuro topic, then we need the women that comprise neuro MCRIT. So we have Casey and Neha here, and they're going to give their expert neurointensivist opinion on these new guidelines. I will chime in with some of my thoughts as well. I think it's really good. Before we jump into it, uh, we have Reanimate 8, the course for resuscitative ECMO, coming up September 7th and 8th, 2022 in San Diego. We have almost sold out. So if you are interested in coming, you better get your tickets now. It is amazing. Every course we have done, we have had at least one person within the next few weeks put a patient on pump, with no other experience except coming to the class. So this is the way to learn eCPR. But not just that, you'll learn a whole bunch of resuscitative skills, like learning how to place big lines right, and run a cardiac arrest in the way that we think it should be run. So check it out, reanimateconference.com. That's reanimateconference.com. All right, let's jump right into the show with Casey and Niha ho! Oh, you thought we were jumping right in, but I lied to you because you are not an MCRIT member. I'm putting this one out totally free for everyone. This is important information you need to know, but uh, you really should be an MCRIT member if you're listening. Uh, we have the best source of information for resuscitation and acute critical care, I am and my team are reading every journal out there, putting the best of that information into the podcast, the blog, and all sorts of other pathways to getting information you need to take care of your sickest patients. So if you're listening to the free spot and are annoyed by these ads, annoyed by the fact that you don't get all of the episodes, then just come on over and sign up at mcrit.org join. It's cheap, it's reimbursable, and it's silly not to do it if you want to take the best care of your sickest patients come on over. We'll start with what was your general feeling of these guidelines? Yay or nay? We'll start with Casey.
1: I'd say yay. I think the thing that really struck me about the guidelines though was like, oh gosh, like there's so much that we just still don't know. Like there's just so much that we're doing because small trials that had questionable benefit, like maybe suggested that this was helpful and it's the best we're going to get. So we keep doing those things. So I think, yay, I mean, it's like, a lot of work to put these together. And I think they are the authors of the paper should be commended for that. Wow, like so much to go in terms of really understanding this disease. Like most in neurocritical care. Yeah, what do you think?
2: So I'm totally the yay camp, because I think, I think there were a lot of different sections of the guidelines, which were not as robust before, which are more robust. Now, there's, I love the way the guidelines were organized in terms of you know, the the hyper acute care, the acute care in hospital who should be transferred and then specifics on, and I'm sure we're going to talk about the controversial areas, but there's definitely more data and people are studying more. What I super like is, is becoming one of those disease processes where clearly time is brain. It's not just about time is brain for acute ischemic stroke, time is brain for intracerebral hemorrhage. So I, I love how the guidelines bring that component out. The second component that I also liked quite a bit was the emphasis on recovery and prognostication and how do you develop a framework for both prognosticating, talking about prognostic uncertainties, being very humble, that prognostic humility component with, you know, recommendations on not instituting, do not resuscitate order early on in the course. So I, I really liked how the guidelines were organized. They're rigorous. The knowledge chunks are succinct and the gap analysis and directions for future study were also very well verbalized in most of the sections of the guidelines.
0: I can't agree more. I I love these guidelines. I love the way they went with them, except for one critical error we will get to that I find to be really repugnant and a a real failure of the form of a guideline advisory. Everything else in this, I was really, really pleased. All right, let's get into some specifics that'll be pertinent to the people in the resuscitative specialties. And I guess the the first question is, do we really, really need to get a CT angiogram on every patient with an ICH, especially in this time right now of shortage of contrast? Who wants to start on that one?
1: Oh, I feel so strongly about CTAs. So okay. I'll, I'll jump in. Cool. I like, I realize that there's a contrast shortage and that we really do need to be mindful about this. But I think the CTA gives so much information. I have just been burned trying to not get this and trying to be, you know, considerate of it. And there's times that we haven't, I'm always just kicking myself and wishing like we should have just gotten this up front. So the things that I will say about the CTA that make it, I think, so important in early you know, prognostic frameworks in ter- terms of thinking about, well, what is this, is that we're thinking about primary ICH, right? And the guidelines, you, know, you have to actually get into primary ICH. And to do that, you need to know that there's not a secondary cause of ICH, right? And so to do that, you need a CTA. So these guidelines can only apply to people where there's not a secondary cause. And for most things, like Granted, we're not going to see hemorrhagic mets on a CTA, but for most things and the most important triage decisions I think are being made with a normal CTA in terms of vascular malformations, you know, people who have AVMs or aneurysms, you know, there are even, even within the world of neurocritical care, there are places that are not equipped to handle those patients, right? Right. You can go to a neurocritical care unit, but you need specialized vascular surgeons. And to get those patients to the right spot, you really need to understand what the underlying pathophysiology is. Now, I will say with the caveat, like does the classic looking hypertensive bleep that's like in the basal ganglia in a patient with uncontrolled hypertension for a long, long time, you know, that if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it probably is a duck. I think I'm I'm willing to be okay with that patient not needing a CTA up front. But if there's any, if anything is not fitting that perfect illness script, you know, they're not that hypertensive or they're younger, especially if they're less than 45 years old. Like the CTA in my mind is imperative. That's just for understanding the diagnosis, right? There's also the prognostication with, you know, finding a spot sign. And so that to me, like when we see someone with a spot sign, I already have such a higher level of concern for that patient and want a closer degree of monitoring, might be a little bit more aggressive with their blood pressure management. So again, I think the CTA, I feel quite strongly that we're getting a lot of information there. You want to add anything to that, now, or are you
2: Yeah, I, I completely agree with Casey. And of course, I'm all for practicality. How do you translate what has been recommended in the guidelines into your clinical practice? So just from a practical standpoint, if we think about CVA is equal to CTAs at every stroke, if your stroke paradigm is CT-based, getting a CT head and a CT angiogram, I do not see any reason why you should be changing that for ischemic stroke versus hemorrhagic stroke versus subarachnoid hemorrhage, because... It makes a lot of sense to get vascular information up front. Casey eloquently highlighted all those reasons, both from a diagnosis, triage, where should this patient go, how aggressively do you need to reverse their coagulopathy, watch their blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's super important to get that information early on. The second thing about a contrast shortage. Now, because there is a contrast shortage, yes, we are being thoughtful about which patients we're going to use contrast in, but this is not an area I don't think these are the patients you need to skim on contrast. So just get that CTA up front. And for all of those different different reasons that that Casey already highlighted, once you have that vascular information, you can also make a very appropriate decision about whether this patient is going to need a conventional angiogram or not. And you want to do that on day zero. You want to decide whether this person is going to need an angiogram. So you can schedule that angiogram, you know, by, by day one, day two, et cetera.
0: I completely agree with both of you with one proviso, which is if you are in a center that is transferring any patient with blood in their head, like it doesn't matter. It's not like you're gonna evaluate, this one could stay, this one could go. There's many centers out there that just any intracerebral hemorrhage at all, it might be more utile to do a non-contrast CT, and then when the receiving center gets that patient, and I inevitably, when receiving these patients, would get a repeat scan across the board, do the CTA at that point, because the rigmarole of timing and and getting the images over could very well make that to be a more hindering than helpful activity. Any Any disagreement to that?
1: Only that transfer has been taking so long, so these patients are just sitting waiting for transport, and if they're just sitting in the the you know waiting for transport, like go ahead and get the CTA. But I think that that's been a post or peri pandemic problem. Fair, fair. And so I, I would
2: experience. I would say you know I, I agree with that that you do not want to delay the transfer of a patient to get a CTA. But my practical recommendation would be order a CT head CTA. Be aware of the pitfalls of getting a CTA at your center, particularly if whether you're a receiving center or a transferring center, just be aware of, yes, this is very hard for us to get at our center or it's super easy and it doesn't add any incremental time, then just get it. Why will you stick a patient twice into the scanner while you're still waiting for transportation so that's one thing the second completely agree with you about serial scans and the guidelines also you know make a make a good point about serial scans and to look for stability of the hematoma you could always if you didn't get a cta straight off the bat you had to you know get a patient out of the scanner to intubate them because they were they decompensated while they were in the scanner whatever it is for whatever reason if your cta gets delayed and you're not able to do it as part of the first first set of scans that you're getting, for the patient do it as part of your serial scan and the serial scan recommendation whether you do it you know you do a serial scan between six to twelve hours you do another scan if there is hematoma expansion you'll need another scan for most of these patients who are going to have a hematoma expansion early hematoma expansion is a real real risk so all those interventions whether it's blood pressure control coagulopathy reversal time is brain you got to move fast that CT angiogram, to Casey's point about that spot sign, even when we look at the guidelines, the guidelines are very clear about a class one recommendation to get a CTA to diagnose the underlying vascular malformation. They do mention it's a class two V recommendation to look for a spot sign. So I think just making that distinction, why are you getting the CTA? You're getting the CTA for both, but depending upon your clinical suspicion, for an underlying vascular malformation, I mean the urgency or the need to get that as part of your first scan. You could potentially make a decision, you know, depending upon whether you're transferring whether you're transferring the patient out or not.
0: Yep, that's a perfect, perfect synopsis of of all I think the issues on that. You know, I, I always found the spot sign to be for funsies. I I didn't do anything differently. I completely hear your point, Casey. But let's get to one that was a new one for me, which is there was some. Broad-based recommendations for when to get a CT venogram on patients outside of the classic presentation for a cerebral venous thrombosis. And all this stuff will be in the show notes, people who read the actual verbiage. But what do you folks think about this, this empiric obtaining of patients who don't have clear signs of hypertension as their bleed with different age cutoffs getting a CTV?
2: Casey, you want to go first? Sure.
1: You know, I... <laughs> I'm not sure this will totally change my practice as I still, I'm looking at the CT head to say like, does that bleed look venous? I have a very high index of suspicion anytime someone comes in with a low bar bleed. And so already in my mind it's just a trigger of like, if I see someone who's got a low bar hemorrhage, who is not clearly within the age range for CAA, which is your 70, 80 older patients, um, I have a pretty low threshold already to get a CTV, so it's not going to change my practice. There are all this, you know, different thresholds, and I think that that's helpful. This is not, guy. This isn't not practice changing for me.
2: And with respect to our clinical suspicion for who is going to have a venous etiology for their ICH, of course, looking at the characteristics, just like Casey said, looking at what that bleed looks like. What are the risk factors for this patient to have sinus venous thrombosis? Here's the other caveat: the practical piece here. When you do a CT angiogram. At our center, when we tell the radiologist, do a CT venogram, it's not a separate order for us. We just put it as part of, you know, the notes. So it just means that they're going to, after giving the bolus for the CT angio, they're also going to do a delayed, you know, run to look at the venous phase. So it's not adding that much more scan time. However, is it Sometimes you will get this poor quality CTA when you're when you're actually interested in the CTA and you won't even get a good quality CTB. So you're in sort of no man's land and then you need, you know, more venous imaging. But here's the other thing. A lot of these patients are also going to get an MRI, MR angiogram. And then if you had a high enough clinical suspicion for sinus venous thrombosis, most of us are probably not going to stop at that CTV no we will try to get an MR venogram with or without gadolinium, depending on how, what is the quality of these studies at your center and what is your pre test probability of finding sinus venous thrombosis. So I think it's not necessarily going to change my practice because I'm also very. Like Casey, I'm also very thoughtful about, okay, am I suspecting sinus venous thrombosis? And my philosophy always is, if I'm going to stick somebody in the scanner, I want all the information that is going to guide immediate management. And if I'm getting vessel imaging, do I want both arterial and venous? So it's, you know, I'm not going to say, do venous imaging on every single patient that you see, because that doesn't make clinical sense.
0: All right, fair. Let's get to an area that makes me angry, which is blood pressure control. You know, I I think the... ASA didn't go far enough on this. I, I don't understand why there's not a recommendation saying that initiation of blood pressure control must happen within the first hour of an ICH. I, I, it, when you look at the studies and they're like, oh, it's questionable whether there's a benefit or not. And like you look at the time to initiation, it was like the start of the drugs, not the time to achieve goal blood pressure. The start of the drugs was like three hours out from the time of arrival, to, it's it's insanity. They did go further in this than they have in the past, but they've said two things that I like. They said a that it's not just a matter of getting the blood pressure to a goal, it's a matter of getting there in a way that achieves blood pressure stability. Now, they didn't, I think, go far enough and say, stop using dumb shit like labetalol to try to do this because it doesn't work. And even if it does, they'll slip back. But uh, let's diverge from the guidelines a little bit. They 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 gave us a blood pressure goal now, 140. With the only backing away from that is if you think the patient might have increased intracranial pressure, giving some consideration to that until they have ICP monitoring, which I think is very fair. So we have a goal now, you know, 140 is the goal, 130 to 150 is the range. They don't, I think, go strongly enough in the timing that should happen in and in the drugs you should use. For me, it's, it should be happening as quickly as humanly possible. It should be using nicardipine and uh, potentially Covitapine, though a lot of folks don't have access to that due to the cost. And if you have the capability, you should put in an art line. Agree or disagree, you start, Neha.
2: Okay, so time is brain, and I completely agree with the moment you've identified that somebody has an intracerebral hemorrhage, you've got to both start blood pressure control, reach your target as fast as possible. I mean, I, there are no questions in my mind about that. I personally don't think I need a big trial to convince me, oh, we need to do this fast. No, it makes a lot of sense, and we we also know. There's there's a little bit of you know, the guidelines mention about mobile stroke units, and a small proportion of those patients were diagnosed with ICH, and about you know, 41 or so percent of those patients were able to start receiving some blood pressure control while out in the field and they ended up having better outcomes. All of those caveats, oh, small, this was not meant to study ICH, et cetera, et cetera. But there are some things that I don't think we need a large randomized control trial to tell us. We know. This is the right thing to do from a standpoint of the highest risk of hematoma expansion is within the first three hours. So a third of these patients are going to have hematoma expansion in the first three hours. We know that, and we know that the trials that we have informing our blood pressure targets did not even have the initiation of the blood pressure medications, you know, by like two and a half, three hours. And the median time to achieve that blood pressure target was anywhere between, you know, four and a half to five, five and a half hours. How is that acceptable? So that is a product of our inability to provide the frontline providers, whether it's our ED colleagues, whether it's EMS, whether it's our intensivists, letting them know that irrespective of what you choose, A-line, blood pressure cuff, you have some time, how frequently you're going to cycle that blood pressure cuff? there is no mention, you know, of course, they acknowledge that, you know, in the knowledge gap that we don't know what is the right modality, should you be putting an A-line or using a blood pressure cuff, etc. But irrespective of what you choose to do, I think it makes a lot of sense when you're using the words smooth transition, consistent, you know, consistent goal and making sure patients stay within the goal and minimize BP variability that, that all of that translates to me Make sure you have a consistent way of measuring the blood pressure. An A-line in these patients would be ideal to, to be able to consistently measure their blood pressure because they're going to have some blood pressure variability. Of course, practically speaking, can you always expect a patient who's waiting to get transferred to get an A-line? No. So that's fine, but use your blood pressure cup, cycle it more frequently, make sure you meet the target quickly and that you cycle the blood pressure cuff often enough, whether it's Q10 minutes, Q15 minutes. That you stay within that target. So I, I do wish that after all of these, you know, after Interact 2 and atac 2 and all those different, you know, post hoc analysis, that the guidelines were a little bit stronger on how they made recommendations for blood pressure. What I do like though, again, from a from a guideline translation perspective, is that 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 range that they provide. You know, they said, okay, do 130 to 150. I think. My interpretation of that was not you should start pressures on somebody whose blood pressure is less than 130. Don't do that. Not cool. But specifically, if you, like us, are worried about joint commission certification and what are your nurses going to use as a range to titrate that drip that you're going to start the patient on, I think it's only fair to give them a range. You could very well say, OK, how about just giving people a number, you know, less than 140? Unfortunately, There are also studies that have shown that if you control somebody's blood pressure to less than 130, if they have a moderate to severe intracerebral hemorrhage and they didn't come in with, you know, very, uh, and and they came in with with blood pressures in the 200s, you can cause harm. So it's important to give that uh, lower limit and an upper limit and make sure that you're, you're staying as close to about 140 as possible. So I think it's one thing to say, okay, here are the trials. This is how we interpret it. But when you look at the guidelines, there's also some recommendations that don't have high quality data that have either limited data or no data at all, where there's expert opinion that is driving a class one recommendation. So if that's the case, I just wonder, you know, I wish they had made it a class one recommendation to say, you know, lower the blood pressure quickly and do all of those things that we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Casey, anything to add to that? I will just, I agree. This is like This seems common sense, like we should be doing this. I 100% agree. The one caveat I'll say is that this is for patients presenting between 150 and 220 systolic blood pressure. I'm down here in the stroke belt. A lot of my patients come in with higher blood pressures than that and getting them to a systolic blood pressure less than 140 will 100% block their kidneys and cause some problems for us. So just mindful. I mean, this is like, Guidelines and personalized medicine, like just be mindful of the patient in front of you.
0: I love that. Let's go Let's go more practical. So like if they come in at 260, that's like 40 over their top limit. Do you go for 160 to 180 as mm-hmm. your blood pressure target?
1: Yeah, 100%. Yeah, All right. We yeah, like are just a little too. bit more generous about like bringing that blood pressure down, doing it in a way that is like a controlled lowering and quickly, but I would not take that person to 140. I love it. I love it. That's perfect. All
0: right, let's go to the one area I think they really fell down on. And not in every part of this, just in one particular part, and I think you two will agree. So let's talk about anticoagulation reversal. You know, let's talk about the warfarin first. It's a little bit weird, and they they were vague on this, but they seem to have a target intimated of 1.3, which is totally not in keeping with the hemostatic feelings of anyone in the blood banking community. 1.5 for even the most delicate areas, the spine and the brain. Is a, our goal in the past? Now they didn't come out and say shoot for 1.3, but they didn't What what is your take on how you're going to interpret that data?
1: Um, I'll start. I, I thought it, you know, this you know can give reversal for an INR of 1.3 to 1.9. I saw that and was sort of like, I would never give it. I like I'm not reversing someone who's coming in with an INR of 1.3, 1.4, you know, 1.5 even. Uh, so that's not reflective of what I'm doing in practice and I don't think I'm going to change my practice based on this guideline given that it was just sort of a a weaker recommendation yep. yeah yeah
2: yeah I, I totally agree I think that just makes it a little bit harder and the, the guidelines don't necessarily justify it well enough for why they're recommending 1.1.3 none of us are doing that in in practice and when we're reading these guidelines, we know that these guidelines are written to help inform clinical practice at the bedside. so if they if they are meant to be practical, then I think that they miss the mark a little bit there by saying, "You know, try to reverse somebody with two less than or equal to one point three.
0: You know what what's really the fuckery of it is the actual wording of their guidelines was okay. You know, they said it may be reasonable. All right, I don't have a problem with that. it's I, I think it's not the way to go, but it's not. It's not damning to practice if you want to make individual decisions. Where they fucked it up is this stupid chart where they took very reasonably worded guidelines and put a algorithm that screwed you first of all on this warfarin issue with the 1.3 to 1.9 giving pcc and but then the one we should get to now which is what to do in direct factor 10a inhibitors and again the guideline language was okay they gave both options in the guidelines and then in this ridiculous fucking chart they said i don't even remember the stupid generic name. and dexanet alpha is not available then pcc is okay but if it's available, the implication is, you gotta give that. Now all of our, I think we, we share this as, you know, the neuroMCR team. Our reading of the literature is very vague on the goodness of indexin and alpha. In fact, there's a lot of intimation of reversal, of the reversal, you know, this rebound effect. I don't like it. It's super expensive. And they could have just stopped at, either one is acceptable or saying something like, you know, it should be an institutional decision. I think that's all the evidence they have. But instead they said, if it's available, or they implied if it's available, you got to use a Dexanet Alpha. What are you going to do with this? It's really tough now to go against guidelines like the American Stroke Association. Why don't you start us off, Nia?
2: So a couple of things. I think the infographics and the guidelines as a whole, they did a nice job of translating several sections into infographics. I just wonder if something got lost in translation here, <clears throat> because that infographic is is misleading about Indexanet versus KCentra. And given... And I have no conflict of interest here. Where we don't currently have, do. uh, have IndexaNet on our on our formulary, and we're reevaluating this literature in light of you know some in light of the guidelines, as well as you know a few cohort studies that also got published, right? So while we're reevaluating this data, we have K centra We've been using K centra There are several centers that have been doing the same. And then, as you correctly mentioned, that whole rebound effect, and what does this mean, and the cost. And it's, it's a prohibitive cost. And despite uh, there's this new acquisition by Alexion and the cost will decrease, however, does it justify if you already have k on your formulary to then also put index on it? The infographic makes it seem like if, if you have index on it, give index on it preferentially. But my request to our listeners would be read the guidelines rather than just looking at that infographic and maybe... Maybe you know some of us can write to the AHA. I happen to serve as a peer reviewer for this guideline, and I, I hadn't seen the infographic, right. so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring that up too because it's it's misleading, and I don't think that was the intention of the folks who wrote the guidelines to make it you know preferential over Centra. All
0: right, you're champing at the bit here, Casey. Go for it.
1: I will be less delicate. I hate this because I have it on the formulary, and I don't like it. I really don't like it at all. I think it's expensive. I think that we then, we don't know how to measure levels. So once it's reversed, then there's this rebound that we're watching for, and we don't have a great way to measure for it. And every time it gets given, I just feel like it is a total headache. So I hate the drug. And now I feel like this guideline is going to sort of put me in this weird corner of feeling that now, since it's on my formulary, I have to preferentially give it. And I like Casentra, and I think Casentra is great. And obviously, I have no conflict of interest. Like, I just feel like it works better, it's faster, it's easier for ordering. Our ED is more comfortable with it, so it gets given faster. So I am really quite upset about this because I don't want to get into sort of a, a boxed in, legally bound by the guidelines to give this preferentially when I don't think it's appropriate.
0: Yeah, I think two things have to happen at this point if you want to continue giving four factor PCC for the factor ten A inhibitors. Either you need to take it off your formulary, which makes everything easy. And I think most hospitals should do that right now. Or you need to go to p and your pharmacy and therapeutics committee, and or your critical care committee and just write a guideline for the hospital. It can't be done on an individual practitioner level saying our review of the evidence is such that we're going to continue giving case natural. Without one of those two things happening, I think it puts people in a really dangerous spot. And it's stupid. All right. In the interest of time, let's move on. We'll talk about platelets, but I'm not going through the whole guidelines on it because I think most of it are just worth reading. DDAVP, yes or no? We'll start with you, Casey. Yes,
1: if neurosurgical procedure.
0: Just for okay, interesting. Because their guidelines are a little vague on that. Mm-hmm. They said give platelet transfusions for any neurosurgical intervention, but the DDAVP was left, they didn't link it to that. But for you, it's only if they're getting a IVC or some form of neurosurgical operation. Is that correct?
1: Yep. That's just that's what we've been doing. It seems to work. I'll- keep doing it all right yeah
2: we've been using ddavp more liberally than casey casey side for sure i'm waiting for the randomized control clinical trials i mean there's some good nih funded trials that are going to come out of northwestern so yep let's let's take a look at what the rct show i am okay if somebody doesn't has a strong opposition to not giving ddavp completely fine with it. if somebody wants to do it sure we'll do it no problem i haven't seen any adverse effects have i seen benefit i don't know
0: Uh, Are you giving it just for aspirin or are you giving it for clopridogrel as well?
2: Just aspirin right now. All right, fair.
0: Fair. All right. We'll very briefly go over DVT prophylaxis solely because I bet there are critical care practitioners out there in generalized units, not neurocritical care units that are still thinking you can't put these patients on some form of pharmaceutical DVT prophylaxis. So their guidelines say at 24 to 48 hours, it's reasonable to start. What's your actual clinical practice?
2: Yep. 24 to 48 hours for us. And I know the guidelines highlight that we don't know the difference between the time points, whether you should wait for 48 hours or is it safe to start, you know, within 24 to 48 hours. But as long as you've had a stability scan and there is no underlying, and we're just talking about primary ICA, so there's no underlying vascular malformation, et cetera. I think it would be... We've been doing that after stability scans, 24 hours after ICH will start it. If somebody's undergone a surgical procedure, whether it's an EVD, craniotomy, minimally invasive clot evacuation, et cetera, we may wait till 48 hours to start DBT prophylaxis.
0: All right. Casey, any difference there? Nope. I think that's totally reasonable. All right, fair. All right. Which of you could start off first, just giving a very brief summary of who should get some form of neurosurgical evacuation of their ICH?
1: Neha, you want to take a Sabbath? No, no, step? go go ahead. Okay, so we're doing less minimally invasive than Neha's institution, so I'll let her speak to that. the The people who I think really need that that intervention, and again, I think that this becomes an issue of. We know that this can prevent mortality. We are less certain about the functional outcome benefits for some of these, for especially for the large clot evacuations. And when we're just talking about decompressive hemicraniectomy, which is what we are primarily doing here, is you know, if someone, you know, comes in, it's a it's a bleed that's larger than 20 to 30 cc's of hemorrhage volume, and they have either they're in a coma or they are rapidly just looking like they're getting worse. Those are patients that we take for decompressive hemicraniectomy with the understanding that, you know, we don't know about the functional benefit of that. I think we keep wanting this to work. Like, I think that that's been a, a big theme in our field is that we feel like if we can get the blood out, the patients will do better. And we keep trying to make that that happen. And I think Neha has had more experience with different types of clot evacuations. And we might actually find a place where we can say this, but I think the surgical literature and all, but very select, you know, like it's cortical, like it's very easy for them to pluck out. It's a patient who's, you know, got small, like, okay, fine. Like those patients, it does make sense for, but I think on a whole, when we're thinking about, you know, clot evacuations for just general ICH, it seems like something that we keep wanting to make really clear that this is a, the way to improve it. And I don't know that the evidence is there on the whole. Fair.
2: So I'm going to be more optimistic about this because I love the fact that, uh, you know, we we are finally beginning to see um, benefit for different kinds of surgical techniques, minimally invasive surgical techniques, MISTI3, with or without thrombolytics, CLEAR3, for IVH evacuation. Now, yes, uh, both Misty 3 and Clear 3 did not meet their primary outcome measure, but our read, and of course, I'm going to totally say I am biased here. I love this stuff. I love the minimally invasive clot evacuation. <laughs> and having seen these patients do well, it in some ways drives my enthusiasm. And so, so my read of the literature was, you know, if you have a technique that can take these clots out to the extent that you have less than 15 cc's of that traditional hematoma left, then they, they're going to have a good outcome. And we did this retrospective analysis of our, you know, sort of single center series. And we also found, you know, that, again, I'm a huge fan of time is brain. Like, let's go fast. Let's do this quickly, right? So time to evacuation and doing this minimally invasive evacuation faster also showed some potential benefit. All of this, of course, needs to be studied with the newer techniques in randomized controlled clinical trials, which are ongoing. There are registries which are are ongoing. So I think this is a paradigm changing area for ICH. And in the next few years, and I thought the guidelines did a good job. Most of the recommendations are like 2A, 2B, a class of recommendations. So they don't like make super strong recommendations. Like if you don't have this available, you should absolutely transfer the patient for minimally invasive clot evacuation. But my suggestion would be that if you are aware of centers in and around your area that are offering minimally invasive cloud evacuation, then for appropriately selected patients, this could be a potential benefit. That's one thing. And the the second piece for just general, you know, in general, who should get a neurosurgical consult, all of those patients who are, who have a hematoma volume of, you know, greater than 15 cc's or so in the, you know, supratentorial region, and then anybody who has a posterior fossa hemorrhage of 15 cc's or greater, you have to consider neurosurgical intervention, whether it's going to be open minimally invasive for posterior fossa, of course, sub- suboccipital craniectomy. If they have IVH, hydrocephalus, you're going to need an EBD. How do you, how do you, if you do not have neurosurgery available at your site, decide do I need to transfer this patient specifically for a neurosurgical consult or not? So, I think the, the guidelines mention this. If somebody has a low GCS or somebody whose GCS, you know, is less than or equal to eight, you're securing their airway, that hematoma volume that we spoke about, there's IVH, there's hydrocephalus. Some of those are more obvious. The others that are less obvious, what is going to be this person's trajectory? Are they going to need, are they going to have hematoma expansion and then going to need neurosurgical intervention? And let's, let's take a look at not just neurosurgical intervention, but neurocritical care, where they're going to need max medical therapy before as a bridge to whatever neurosurgical intervention they're going to need. So I think just keeping those two things in mind, there are some obvious reasons why you will want to consult your neurosurgical colleagues. And two, what is your ability to predict the anticipated trajectory for that patient based upon imaging, clinical characteristics, and you know whether somebody was on warfarin or not, et cetera. All
0: right. I love it. All right, let's do some quick hits. So who needs intracranial pressure monitoring? Very rarely done in my experience with age patients who were not aneurysmal subarachnoids. They were just straight up bleeds. Unless, you know, they were that patient on the trajectory to craniectomy. Who are you guys getting monitors placed on?
1: Casey? So I'll say that our patients that are getting EVDs are the patients that have IVH. And that's pretty much limited. Like, I don't think we do. I I can't even think of someone we've put in an intracranial pressure monitoring that it wasn't an EVD to, to like relieve the IVH. Yeah,
2: I agree. I agree with Casey. And we've been doing more non-invasive ICP monitoring as well. When we're trying to bridge patients to a definitive treatment and then in that peri-op Period as well t- till we know that their hematoma is not going to expand or that perihematomal edema has, has stabilized. But yeah, we're also not placing a lot of ICP monitors in these patients. For those centers that have EVDs that are able to continuously, you know, transduce ICP numbers even in the open position, so you can drain and transduce an ICP number. I think it makes sense. You have it, you know, follow that along. But there is no trial like best ICP for TBI that looks at head-to-head you know, comparison for whether you should have a monitor in place or not for ICH patients. So we're not doing as much ICD monitoring. These. All right
0: Now, I don't think this is any change from the neurocritical care community, but I know people in the general ED and critical care are still effing this up. Does any patient who is not seizing or has signs of subclinical seizure on EEG need anti-seizure prophylaxis? Uh, this, we're not talking about subaracts. We're talking purely spontaneous ICH. Does any patient need anti-seizure prophylaxis?
1: I would
2: say no. Yeah. And based on the guidelines also, it looks like no. So less is more.
0: I love it. All right. Last topic is limitation of life-sustaining treatments. And Casey, you know, I, you did an amazing tutorial on the ICH score and its uh, lack of absolute prediction and shouldn't be looked as a death sentence for these patients. The guidelines, I think, did a good job on this as well. I have been thoroughly made humble by my lack of ability to neuroprognosticate on anything except the patient's baseline physical condition. Um, That was rammed into me during my neurocritical care training. Nothing has changed it since then. What are your feelings on who we should be uh, saying no aggressive measures based solely not on the patient's wishes or their baseline physical condition, but based on their new injury pattern?
1: Yeah, so I think that this is a topic that I feel quite strongly about only because like I got this wrong as a resident. Like I I somehow like I feel strongly about it now only because like the ICH score seems so black and white. Like oh look like this like 97% of patients aren't going to make it. That seemed like such an easy way to communicate with family about the severity of illness, and then just reinforces that like self fulfilling prophecy. Like we tell patients they're going to do very badly, and of course they withdraw care, and so. I, you know, I think the ICH score is fine in terms of talking about the severity of illness, right? An ICH score of 4 is a more severe bleed than an ICH score of 3, and that's important, you know, as an important message to send when you're transferring patients. To think about the ICH score in prognostication, I don't think is is the appropriate use of that scoring. And so in terms of like who do I think that we need to limit life-sustaining treatment up front just based on like their survival pattern. For me, those are the patients like that will be honest with the family about like, there's nothing we can do. If it's someone who without a decompressive craniectomy is going to progress to brain death, just based on the size of their bleed. And if neurosurgery takes a look and says, listen, we're not decompressing this patient, usually because of their overall frailty, then that trajectory is such that like that patient has an unsurvivable illness. And I will be t- like very honest with those families up front, like, you know, this is unfortunately an unsurvivable illness and we need to focus on keeping your level uncomfortable. But that's not based on an ICH score. Like that's based on how their bleed looks, their frailty of illness, the fact that the way to get them through this this part of their disease would only be with surgery. And if that surgery is not on the table, then they're not going to make it. And I think that we owe it to families to be upfront about, you know, the fact that there's there's a limitation to what we can do. Again, I try not to commit to a DNR before like 48 hours unless it's clear that this patient is rapidly progressing to brain death and they might, you know, code and we would hate to put them through that if that's an irreversible cause. So again, I try to, you know, in all but like we are clearly on the road to brain death, I try to, you know, let things say where they are for like the first one to two days before we kind of make these transitions. It's like a really stressful and scary time for families. And even though, you know, we look at the scan and say like, there's no chance they're going to make it to get the family to that point is not always as simple as like, it took me 30 seconds to scroll through the scan and say that this is a non-survivable illness.
2: You know, and the guidelines, I think do a really nice job. Of driving home this point that we should not commit patients to these self-fulfilling prophecies. Incidentally, they had three recommendations just on the ICAT score alone. What the ICAT score is and what it isn't, and they make a class three recommendation: do not use this alone to limit life-sustaining therapies. Do not use this alone to, you know, decide whether you're going to offer aggressive measures or not. We've got to look at that whole patient. And neurocritical care as a field, I think, carries the burden of some of these self-fulfilling prophecies. And the more we are looking at all these different kinds of severe acute brain injuries, including ICH, TBI, cardiac arrest, and, you know, severe acute ischemic stroke, like there's, there's so much data now on when should you actually off this kind of dire prognostication? Because our ability to prognosticate is limited by the kind of data that we have available on day zero. There are very, very few patients where you can actually be very certain in saying, okay, this is not survivable. If you had a massive, you know, deep ICH dissecting through the brainstem, patient was found down and they have no brainstem reflexes, like how often are you going to encounter that kind of patient? Or you have a massive low bar ICH with a midline shift of more than a centimeter and they have no brainstem reflexes and nobody knows their last, no normal. Like how often is that going to happen? So we have to be very, very careful And for all practical purposes, and of course, it's very much in line with how I approach all of neurocritical care. So yes, prognostic humility, super, super important. And do not subject patients to self-fulfilling prophecies. And the guidelines, I think, did a fabulous job of highlighting that.
0: Oh, this has been amazing. I I think listeners will certainly take a lot of information from this, even beyond what they're going to get in the guidelines, just because the clinical experience and thought process of you two is so extraordinary. Is there anything we've missed that you want to add before we say goodbye to our listeners?
1: You know, Neha, when you're talking about, like, the minimally invasive cloud evacuations, all I can think about is how this will hopefully be our new mechanical thrombectomy. You know how it took us, like, forever, like the idea of pulling the clot out of the brain, like that is so like, duh, that makes sense. Like it should work, but it took us so long to find the right patient population and to do the, like to have the, you know, the technology that allowed us to do this. And I just so, so hope that the ICH, you know, the paradigm of of clot evacuation becomes like, you know, the mechanical thrombectomy of the next you know couple of years coming down the pipeline.
2: Awesome, Casey. You said exactly what I would have wanted to say for for MIS. I'm really hoping this is going to be that era of, you know, akin to what what thrombectomy did. It just changed how we take care of patients. It it just improved outcomes dramatically. So, yes, we're going to wait for those, you know, blockbuster landmark randomized controlled clinical trials there. A couple of things that I do want to highlight that we didn't touch upon was the systems of care approach and making sure that you have a systems of care approach for acute ischemic stroke, I think we're, we're so much more attuned to having a systems of care approach, who to transfer, the, the time to different kinds of interventions, the time to CT, the time to reversal, the time to BP control, like that, I think, really needs to get translated into how we provide care for ICH patients. That's one thing. And the second thing, which I think the guidelines also did a nice job of highlighting that multidisciplinary village that it takes to take care of these patients and that continuum of care right from their hyperacute phase to their recovery phase it's going to take a, a multidisciplinary team that really knows what they're doing so the patient patients go to the right place at the right time whether it's a stroke unit whether it's a neuro icu you're engaging the right teams to really help these patients get access to those time sensitive therapies that have the potential to change their outcomes
0: beautiful can't thank you too enough and i can't wait to hear more from neuro amcrit
2: Thank you, you so much. This was awesome. Thanks, Pat.
0: There you go. Check out the show notes and uh, leave your comments. This has been Scott Winger for the MCRIT podcast saying bye-bye. Physician CME for the MCRIT podcast is provided by EB Medicine. EB Medicine are the purveyors of the best evidence-based medicine. Emergency medicine publications out there. You can check out their stuff at ebmedicine.net slash MCRIT.